0: most distinctive outlier group in the United States is actually the progressive activist group, rather than the conservatives. The conservatives, including the devoted conservatives, are actually closer to the average in terms of underlying beliefs.
1: And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat a authoritarian populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40 Normally, I try to say something interesting and original in this little opening spiel. I know the privilege of having so many of you listening to this, and I try to do my best to add something to your day. Today, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say something that is obvious to all of you, but that bears repeating none Populist, governments, and parties and movements actually stay in power a long time on average. They manage to undermine the most basic rules and norms of liberal democracy to make the playing field uneven, to make it harder and harder for the opposition to succeed. And one of the best predictors of whether they are successful in that is whether or not the opposition manages to retain throughout their tenure in power some kind of counterbalance they control a few institutions in the country that can stop authoritarian populists from dismantling free and fair elections and other things. We haven't had that for the last two years, but we have a chance to reestablish that a few weeks from now. And that's why these midterm elections are so crucial. If Democrats manage to win back the House, it's not going to allow them to put through their favoured public policies. It's not even going to allow them to completely make a stop to, for example, Donald Trump's attacks on independent law enforcement agencies. But it will give them a veto power over the most dangerous forms of legislation. It will allow them to investigate misdoings by the Trump administration, especially if that should no longer be possible in independent branches like Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. In short, it will make it much more likely that Democrats can hold the line until American voters have a chance to oust Donald Trump from office in 2020. So take a little moment to make sure you vote. Take a little moment to tell your friends and family to vote. Perhaps take a little moment to get behind a telephone and make calls for some of those campaigns in swing districts, some of those swing Senate races. And much as I love Beto O'Rourke, and I do like him quite a bit, don't do it in Texas. Everybody is piling into that Senate race. Do it in some of those districts and some of those Senate races, which have been covered much less. And where the marginal phone call or even the marginal donation dollar can make a much bigger difference. End of PSA, end of Captain Obvious, back to a great exploratory in-depth conversation, the kind of thing that makes this podcast. Last week, I told you all about really interesting report that came out called Hidden Tribes, a Study of America's Polarized Landscape. It was written by a bunch of researchers for a great organization called More in Common that tries to fight polarization around the Western world. And I'm really pleased that this week I had a conversation with Tim Dixon, one of the co-founders of More in Common, somebody who understands a lot about political strategy. He was a speechwriter writer and advisor to two Australian prime ministers, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, the first uh, female Australian PM. And we didn't sit down together. This is one of the rare times that I did a Skype conversation to talk about all kinds of things that come out of this report, from electoral strategy, from how to understand America's partisan divide at the moment, to questions surrounding how to think about the role that the sort of tribe of progressive activists has in the cultural and political life of the left half of America, of the kinds of people, by and large, who listen to the good fight.
0: Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much, Gasha. It's great to join you and thanks for the amazing work that you're doing.
1: Of course. Listen, so last week I told my listeners about this great new study, Hidden Tribes, and I'm sort of trying to think of what the main takeaway of it is. It seems to me that the main takeaway is that the way we think about American politics tends to be wrong in some important ways. When we think about polarization in the United States today, we think about liberals versus conservatives. We might think about Democrats versus Republicans. Perhaps we have in mind a kind of division between a set of young, often people of color who are quite left-wing versus old white men who tend to be on the right. You argue that this is the wrong way of understanding American politics. We should instead be looking at these hidden tribes, which tell us much more about people's moral and political beliefs. What are these hidden tribes? Well, just to step back from jumping into the tribes, I think to say what
0: jumped out at us with conducting this study. It's a very big study. It's large-scale representative sample, a lot of qualitative research, so interviews, as well as the questions across a very wide range of issues. But the thing that jumped out at us that surprised us, and I think this is the piece that's missing in the national conversation, is the extent to which most Americans, most Americans are not engaging in the political conversation from day to day, the, the extent to which most of them are deeply anxious about the state of the country and the degree of division. So we asked questions of people, you know, what's the biggest challenge things face in America? What's the biggest problem? And what was surprising and really striking was not just that people said, it's our division, it's our polarization, but it was the intensity with which they said that. These are people, most Americans, not highly political, but they get very emotional about the issue of division. And because very quickly, the conversation that we hear from them is not this is what's going on in Washington, or this is what I see on my cable TV, but they start talking about it in the context of their own families and their relationships and their friends and their community, and how division that was once just a political debate is now intruding into their most private spaces. I think there is tremendous anxiety about that across America today. And I think that is a really important finding from our work, because polarization is not just an issue of politics. Now, we can talk about the way in which that's lived out in the tribes, but the striking thing then when you do this breakdown of the country, it's the fact that most people are not in the warring tribes. Most people do not strongly identify with the sort of unambiguous, trenchant, strident views that the most active participants in the political debate hold.
1: So what are some of the headline figures here? I know that you asked, for example, whether it is more important to people that the politicians representing them listen to the views on the other side and try to come to compromise, or whether they prefer for them to sort of really fight for their values. What are some of the headline findings on that?
0: Well, it's striking on the question of how you look at the country's divisions today. And we took this research, new part of the study, during the week after the confirmation hearings for Kavanaugh. And 87%, so 9 out of 10 Americans say the country is more divided now than at any time in their lifetime. Uh, 93% said that they are tired, exhausted by the polarisation of the country. And yet 77% also say that the divisions within America, the differences among people are not so great that the country can't come together. So they see a combination of a deeply divided country a deeply polarised political conflict that's intruding into the ordinary lives, communities of everyday Americans who don't take a highly active interest in politics. But at the same time, they feel like it doesn't have to be like this, that it's possible for people to compromise. And a strong majority of people around seven in 10 Americans say, you know, compromise is something that you have to do in life. Not so much that people... have a kumbaya view that compromises this wonderful thing that should be celebrated, but more because in their own families, in their workplaces, in their lives, they make compromises. Why can't people on the political stage do the same thing?
1: And so that's actually a very optimistic finding because it shows that people both – think of the current situation as being far more polarized than it should be. And they, at least in theory, say that they are willing to see the point of view of the other side, to compromise on certain things, that they want more political reconciliation. And I suppose this leads you in part to the argument that there's a sort of exhausted majority, that actually what's striking about American politics at the moment is not the clash between left and right, but the fact that there's a very small left faction that doesn't want compromise and whose views are out of the mainstream with the rest of America, a somewhat bigger right faction of whom similar things are true. And then about two thirds of the population that fall into the exhausted majority. What is the nature of this exhausted majority? How would you describe them?
0: Well, so the exhausted majority is four of the tribes, four of the seven tribes that we identified. Now, it's not that they have the same views. They have differences in views on different issues of, you know, quite a variety. But what unites them is a sense of exhaustion with the state of politics, and it's really something that they talk about. So they see in their own lives that you have to be flexible. They expect flexibility. They're not of the view that you can't compromise or you can't come to resolution on issues of differences and move forward. So they've got a flexibility, but also a sense of exhaustion. They feel left out of the political debate. They feel that their perspective, which is, you know, in a sense, just more common sense, is not being reflected in the the way politics is playing out or the way that the political debate is playing out.
1: So let's talk for a moment through these tribes. As I remember it, these seven tribes are sort of broadly from left to right, progressive activists, traditional liberals, passive liberals, the politically disengaged, moderates, traditional conservatives, and diverted conservatives. And so the basic way you characterize these is that traditional diverted conservatives are sort of off to one side. They don't like compromise very much and their views are out of the mainstream of a American society. Progressive activists don't like compromise. Their views are out of the mainstream of American society. They're off to the other side. And then these other four remain in that kind of middle. Let's talk perhaps a little bit from the extremes to the center, because I think that's quite interesting. How would you describe the traditional and the devoted conservatives and what kind of role do they play in American life?
0: Well, the traditional and devoted conservatives are an older group. They are loyal to the Republican Party. They are on moral issues, clear and strong. They're opposed to immigration, for example. They are defined by a strong kind of right of centre personal morality. They are distinctly older. They are more white, uh, slightly more male than they are female. So they're largely what you would expect in that breakdown of the distinctives of the conservatives. and the thing that's surprising to me about them as a, a long-time observer of american politics is just how rapid the trumpian takeover of the republican party has been in the sense that there isn't a strong libertarian group that emerges from this there's a very clear alignment on issues of nationalism or what we describe as in-group versus out-group identity the the sort of free market thinking that Traditionally was part of moderate republicanism, isn't really in evidence looking at this group. My sense is that this group has been really influenced over the last 20, 25 years by partisan cable TV, which with Fox started sometime before MSNBC did on the other side. But you know, it's also the larger group. So if you think of the two more liberal groups on the other end, the progressive activists and the traditional liberals, they're 19%. This group of traditional conservatives, devoted conservatives, is 25%. And whereas there is differences in the points of view of the two more left-oriented groups, there isn't really fundamental difference in how the two conservative groups see the world. There is just a much greater intensity with the devoted conservatives.
1: That's really interesting. Now, one of the things that I was wondering about is that there is a sort of slight asymmetry in how you present these groups which is to say that on the left, there are sort of two groups, one of which in a sort of superficial reading is a little bit more hardcore, the progressive activists, and the one which is a bit more moderate, the traditional liberals. And there seem to be a similar division on the right. There's the devoted conservatives and then the traditional conservatives. In fact, traditional liberals and traditional conservatives literally have mirroring labels, right, the the traditional Mm. for their end of the political spectrum. And yet you include traditional liberals under the exhausted majority Whereas you label traditional conservatives as being part of the sort of wing that doesn't actually belong to this exhausted majority. What's the reasoning for that? What is it about this group of traditional conservatives, which either make their views uh, further away from the mainstream, or perhaps just makes them much less willing to compromise and therefore self-select out of that exhausted majority?
0: It's specifically the way in which we define the exhausted majority and what we found in common, which was a fed up with polarization, flexible in their thinking and feel left out of the political process. Now, none of those three are true with the traditional conservatives. They are less flexible, less open to compromise, but they're also kind of doing well right now because of the Republican dominance in the White House, Congress and across the state houses across the country. So they don't have that sense of fatigue or despair about politics. Now, why the traditional liberals, we felt they're different to the progressive activists, is that they don't have a view that they should win in every political debate. They have a a willingness to compromise in a sense there's something. I mean, they're the baby boom generation in their values in many ways, sort of the baby boom liberalism. They understand that sometimes their side will be in power, sometimes it won't be in power. And they definitely don't buy nearly as much into the stronger culture and identity agenda that characterizes the progressive activist group.
1: That's really fascinating. So let's move from one wing to the other, just sort of continuing our quick tour of these groups before we start to analyze them a little more deeply. What about these progressive activists? The first thing that I want to note, which is really striking, I'm going to pose a quick question, a quick quiz to my listeners. What do you think the racial composition of traditional conservatives is compared to progressive activists? You can type your answer into your phone or shout it at your Alexa I spiked the football a little bit in how I set up the question, but this is one of the really striking things, that actually uh, traditional conservatives are a pretty racially homogeneous group compared to uh, the rest of the country. But progressive activists are more so. So 79% of traditional conservatives are white, and a full 80% of progressive activists are white. So that's really interesting. I think in the imagination of a lot of people who try to picture a progressive activist coalition, this is the really diverse sort of people of colour, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. How is it that these progressive activists are different from that imagination, Tim? It's a highly educated group. They are
0: younger, although there's a full spread of ages, as there is with, with all of the groups. They are distinctive in very high level of engagement, a high income and being, as you say, very white.
1: I mean, in fact, I just looked up, I think the share of African-Americans among traditional conservatives is twice as large, 6%, compared to only 3% among progressive activists, which is really quite striking. It is striking,
0: isn't it? I mean, the concentration of people of color is in the what we describe as these middle groups, the exhausted majority groups, particularly in the passive liberal and politically in- disengaged groups that we'll come to. But just to go back to what else is distinctive, there are on attitudinal questions, which is the, the area where I think this research has broken the most of the, the new ground, the kind of combination of political attitudes plus more underlying moral values, foundations, core beliefs, et cetera. I think the secularism of the progressive activists is very striking. So two thirds of Americans say religion is important to them, important to their identity. Only one in four progressive activists say religion is important to their identity. And in that respect, they're very different to every other group, very different from the traditional liberals. And on those sort of more contemporary social and cultural questions, They really are outliers, whereas they will sometimes be 40 to 45 percentage points off the the average for Americans, whereas the traditional liberals are actually relatively close to the average on most questions. So the interesting reflection on this is just seeing how much the most distinctive outlier group in the United States is actually the progressive activist group. Rather than the conservatives, the conservatives, including the devoted conservatives, are actually closer to the average in terms of underlying beliefs. And I think that that insight kind of tells you a lot about the way different fights play out around welfare, immigration, security, and so forth. They're starting from a very different position.
1: Yeah. And for me, this study was so interesting in part. Because it was an exercise in self-reflection. And the exercise in self-reflection comes from the fact that, you know, I might disagree with progressive activists on certain things, but I'm very much a member of that tribe. First, in that, actually, I think, on many beliefs, I do agree with them. Second, that in terms of cultural attributes, I very much fit that. So as you were just talking about religion, I'm one of those people who don't define themselves particularly by their religion. That's quite unusual in America. It makes me squarely fit into that group. And third, that, you know, the kinds of spaces in which I've grown up, and particularly the kinds of spaces in which I've lived since coming to the United States, are precisely progressive activist spaces. These are the people from whom the ranks of PhD students at places like Harvard University are drawn. My editors, my fellow journalists at Slate, and at The Atlantic, and at the New Yorker, and other places are drawn from this world. Even People in think tanks, people who help to run political campaigns and so on, they are all drawn overwhelmingly from that tribe. And so what I found striking here is to recognize to what extent, I think I made a miscalculation about the nature of America, which is that I looked at the people around me and I realized that they don't represent the whole of America. But I think there's an easy temptation to think they represent about half Right, We are part of a half of left-wing liberal America, and then there's a sort of half of America that's conservative and perhaps even Trumpist, and that's a division of a country. But actually, when you look at it, progressive activists make up about 8% of the overall population. And that's really strikingly brought out by some of his headlines' findings. I discussed last week the fact that actually 80% of Americans are against uh, political correctness or say that political correctness is a problem in the country. There's some other even more striking figures here. I believe it's 85% of Americans who think that affirmative action is bad. There is a tremendous number of Americans who say that the best way to deal with violence in inner cities is not through gun control, but at least as much through changing urban culture, as you put it in one of the questions. So I guess my question is, what comes out of that fact? What you is the implication of the fact that so many of us and so many of the people listening to this podcast probably live in a tribe that represents about 80% of a population and falsely believe that it represents a much, much bigger portion of a country.
0: I think that's a consequence of the convergence of a number of factors. So obviously, lots have been written about social media or the, the sort of effective echo chambers and filter bubbles and all of that's true. Then there's a sort of social segregation that is happening through education, through urbanisation and the the crowding of particular groups into the big cosmopolitan cities on the coasts predominantly. Also, part of what's important here is the moral universe, in a sense, that a progressive activist lives in. So just to give you a practical example, uh, with our research director. So he was doing some research with people in the Midwestern towns, essentially some of the areas that have been hit by deindustrialization. And he was asking the question in focus groups, do you know anybody who has dropped out? So that is, they've dropped out of work, they're living on welfare or they're sponging off their parents or whatever it is, but they're essentially not sort of participating in the workforce in society, they're living off somebody else. And he asked that question in New York, among his friends, and not one friend, could think of someone who that was sort of in their circle of friends who had dropped out. When he asked it in the Midwest, in the focus groups, every single person in every group said yes. There was They could think of someone. Many of them, of course, could think of several. If you live in most of the country, the moral universe you live in is one in which people who succeed are people who overcome the challenges in their lives, who perhaps overcome addiction or overcome relationship problems or overcome Unemployment, or often battling against the vices in their own nature, and have a story about how if they've been successful, it's because they've worked hard and they've triumphed over things about themselves that they had to fight. That's a very different moral universe to the one that we who are living in in urban cosmopolitan areas. We don't sort of think of ourselves in the same way as good or bad. We think of social ills that way. We think of our prejudices, but we don't think of a sort of moral character through that lens of our own personal responsibility. And I think if you understand where the moral universe that people live in and what they see as good and bad and the way in which political issues sort of are filtered through their personal experience, it kind of makes sense that there is this vast difference and this vast gap because we're not mixing any longer with people who are unlike us. And I think, you know, this is not uniquely a problem on the progressive side because I think equally... There's a tribalization that's happening across uh, all areas of society. But I think the point that you're picking up is exactly right. There is a particular gap among urban cosmopolitans. And we, we see this pattern, by the way, all across the world. So we've conducted these studies in France and Germany, in the Netherlands, and, in Italy, and we've seen the same thing of a, of a cosmopolitan group, which is typically in those countries around 25 to 35% of the population. That's just really distinctively different. And it is quite tribal. And although it has, you know, there's, characteristics of the cosmopolitans is that they're more curious and open and engaging and positive towards globalisation. They are really quite different from the other two-thirds or three-quarters of the population. And they're not a majority anywhere, anywhere in the world.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, one question that I have is on those cosmopolitan groups. And I think it's one of the reasons, by the way, why green parties are succeeding and social democratic parties are struggling at the moment across Europe. So what you're seeing there is that I think social democratic parties used to command 40% or so of the population because they managed to bridge the divide between cosmopolitan and non-cosmopolitan groups. They appealed to urban uh, teachers, artists, uh, civil servants who did have a cosmopolitan bent, and they also appealed to sort of the working class, but very much did not, but they felt that their economic interests were represented by these parties and they had a historical link to them. I think it's now become more and more difficult for social democratic parties to hold those two things together, and so you see each half of their base cheating. The working class half of their base is cheating with far-right populist parties, And the cosmopolitan base is saying, well, why should we vote for this party that doesn't completely represent us, that makes certain kinds of compromises? We're going to go to things like the German Green Party, which is a very good representation of the broad cosmopolitan worldview. And by the way, I think the Greens are very well set up in that way. I think they cover their end of a political spectrum in a very effective way. And the German Green Party, unlike the American Green Party, I find to be very winning for those reasons. It speaks to me. I'm part of a cosmopolitan tribe. But I think the Social Democrats need to learn not to go after that cosmopolitan electorate because it's already covered by the Greens. Not to try and reconcile the two, because that's impossible, but to go after those working class votes, because those are the votes that you need to win in order to actually keep down the success of the populists. That's where the battleground, where you can shift votes from the right to the left, and more importantly, from authoritarian parties two liberal parties. But the question I have going back to that is, you said the cosmopolitan tribe is about 25%, 30% in countries like Germany and France. Who would you count as part of that cosmopolitan sort of world in the United States? Is it just the progressive activists who are 8% of the population? And does that mean that actually there's just less of America that has that cosmopolitan outlook? Or would you count the traditional liberals, which are another about 11% as part of that group?
0: I think the nature of the spectrum, the way in which the tribes form is different in the United States. So on the one hand, the debate, I think, in the European countries, we really found that it is a fundamental conflict of open versus closed viewpoints of the world or, you know, the more nationalist versus the more cosmopolitan. In the United States, it's different and the polarisation is far more advanced because it's a very binary political polarisation between Liberals and Conservatives or Democrats and Republicans. And say, if you take a country like Italy, where there is tremendous diversity of political viewpoint in all of the tribes. So we certainly, we identified tribes, we identified seven tribes in Italy, but they had different points of view about different issues within all of those groups. And, you know, in confusing ways, I mean, lego supporters, for example, who were a quarter of them were pro-refugee. You just do not find that in the United States context.
1: Huh, and That's amazing. I mean, the League is one of the most xenophobic governing parties in Exactly. Europe, really. And yet, there isn't a sort of ideological
0: uniformity in any of the tribes that we found in. I mean, there's, there's clear patterns and correlations, but you don't get what you have in the US, which is you get 95, 97, 98, 99% agreement with totally different propositions about police brutality, feminism, uh, immigration, refugees, and so forth. And so what's happened in the US is for some period of time, there has been this process of polarization in which every cultural issue gets forced into this process of polarization where one tribe takes its position and the other essentially defines itself in opposition. Well, as an exercise, turn on Fox or MSNBC or any number of the online channels of the warring tribes and see how much of their conversation is actually the outrage of the other, what the other side is doing. You know, their definition, they are fundamentally, and it's why we call the report you know The Hidden Tribes, it's like, they're fundamentally tribal. They're not having conversations about issues. They're having conversations essentially about tribalism and about each other. And that's a very dangerous because when you get to that point and you're no longer looking at the other side just as Americans or as people with a different viewpoint, but you're seeing them through that lens, you end up in a position where all your conflicts spiral in very dangerous ways. I mean, I sat down with three people who are heads of post-conflict and conflict resolution organizations that work in developing world. And one of them had spent the last 30 years American. She had spent the last 30 years working in places like the Congo and Rwanda and so forth. And I was sharing the results of the research with her. And her jaw dropped. She said, you know, I have been wondering, I'm about to retire and go back home. And I've been wondering how I might use the skills that I acquired working in, you know, countries of, where conflict and civil war. <laughs> and you have just described to me the characteristics of a country that is half a generation, so 10 or 20 years away from civil violence, that you are literally like ticking the boxes in what you're describing. And that's why with our work, we've so focused on trying to understand the middle because ultimately, you know, you have these boring tribes, but if they successfully tribalize the middle groups and force the polarization into a 50-50 world, which isn't yet in the United States, but if they do that, democracy can't survive. Legitimately, all, all well, your institutions um, come under attack. And even if you look at what happened with the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation, you know the dangerous thing to me to take out of that is that now the Supreme Court is discredited in the eyes of you know a very large number of people in the country.
1: Well, Tim, you've accomplished a rare feat on this podcast, which is to be more terrifying and more pessimistic than the host. Congratulations. <laughs> One of the things that is striking, I think, is that I can't think of a political issue in Germany or in Italy which immediately casts you out of the cosmopolitan group as effective a way as sort of comparatively minor policy choices would in the United States. So in Germany, being a cosmopolitan it comes along with a certain sort of set of nostrums that you tend to believe in. And if you don't believe in most of them, then you're not a cosmopolitan. But I don't think there's sort of any single issue which has the emotional force of saying, well, if you don't believe that, then you really aren't a member of this tribe. I mean, unless you go towards, you know, really quite straightforward racism. Whereas in the United States, I mean, you know, 85% of the population think that affirmative action uh, uh, is on the whole negative. But you know, if you say that you're against affirmative action on a university campus, it really puts you in the outside group in a very straightforward way, even if you have sort of pretty orthodox views on most of the other things in which progressive activists believe. So, so that actually, I think, is interesting. And the intensity of a line drawing and sort of how far out they're being drawn among the cosmopolitan tribe uh, is perhaps different. Perhaps it, it, it explains why we should think about it as sort of these 8% of sort of devoted cosmopolitans who are sort of, Unified in that worldview and set of very clear boundary lines, and then a larger group of traditional liberals and perhaps to some extent passive liberals who are sort of instinctively liberal or cosmopolitan in those kinds of broader ways. Now, here's another thing that I take out of this, which I want to have your reaction on, which is that there's been this big debate for the last two years about whether Democrats should mobilize the base or whether they should try and persuade swing voters. Now, I know that this is not, you're not in that business, you're not a US political consultant, but indulge me for a minute. Because the first point that I want to make about this, and I want to see whether you agree with that, knowing that are much better than I do, is that Democrats tend to imagine an inexistent group when we talk about mobilizing the base. Because what they tend to have in mind is a group of people who are consistently progressive in their views, who are sort of woke, to use a verbal shortcut for it, and who are often people of color, often less affluent, and who don't yet vote in large numbers, a lot of whom stay home because they feel a little disengaged from politics. And when I look at this study, I come to the conclusion that that group simply doesn't exist, or to put it more precisely, that it's an amalgam, a concatenation of two very different groups. So on the one hand, you have progressive activists, and they are woke in that kind of way. They have very consistently cosmopolitan views, but they are overwhelmingly white twice as likely to make more than $100,000 a year than the average American, three times as likely to have a postgraduate degree, and already in the vast majority go out to vote and mostly vote for the Democratic Party. So this is a group you need to keep because it's one important base of your electorate, but it's 8% of the population that already mostly votes and that doesn't fit the description that we usually give. Then there's another group, and that's mostly the passive liberals. That's a group that's much larger. It's 15% of the population. They don't engage in politics as much. So a lot of them don't go out to vote. We can actually mobilize them. They are younger. They are less educated. They are much more likely to be people of color. But, and here's the rub, their views are not at all consistently quote-unquote woke. So this is a group where about 80% say that they don't like political correctness. Most don't like affirmative action. About 50% of them actually say that they think urban culture is as much of a problem for crime in Vienna inner cities as gun control. It's a group that thinks that increasing crime rates are a real problem. Um, So uh, they are liberals on most views. They certainly want better treatment of immigrants and especially illegal immigrants. They are really keen for better health care and those kinds of things. They don't think that America is all about personal responsibility. They think by and large when people are suffering, it's because they've they've had a stroke of bad luck. They are liberals, but they, they are not the sort of idea we have in mind when we talk about sort of the work group we want to mobilize. Does that seem about right to you?
0: Yes, so I think you're right. It's a different story to the way in which it's often framed as mobilizing the base versus persuading the middle or a moderate segment. The passive liberal group, what's striking in the question around people's intention to vote from the uh, research that we conducted just in the last few weeks, is that there is clearly a shift in this group. And they're 15% of the population, so they're a large group. They are marked out by having a low level of confidence in their own agency. They don't see themselves as being able to you know, influence the you know, politics of the issues at a national level. Gender plays a bigger role in the composition of this group than any other group. So they're almost 60% female. And as you say, a high proportion people of colour and lower income, quite a lot of people who are burdened by student debts, for example, they're struggling to get along. And they're quite similar, in fact, to the next group, the politically disengaged group in that respect, in both their racial composition and education and uh, income level. But when they are forced to take a position on an issue, they're quite liberal in their disposition. So they would line up with the traditional liberals on many issues, not on every single issue, but on many. But the issue for them is, you know, they're also like, they are fed up with polarisation politics. They would like the temperature of politics to be turned down. They have worries about practical issues of security. They don't like conflict and arguments. So they have a different way into the political debate. But what's striking is only 44% of them voted in 2016. According to when we asked their intention to vote in the midterms, it's up now to 68%, of whom 63% plan to vote Democrat. So I sense that this group is critical to the midterm result because there is such a big shift and the shift with them in their intention to vote is bigger than in any other group. And also, of course, you're starting from quite a low base. So perhaps the story of 2018 is the story that this passive liberal group has been rocked out of its passivity by the circumstances of Trump administration and the issues that they see as, as being at stake.
1: So now I I am going to press you into service because you did used to be a speechwriter and for you're not American. I wonder what you take as, you know, how would you mobilize that group? So if we decide that one of the key parts of democratic strategy is in the terms of going forward into 2020, is to mobilize this group, you know, having set in on focus groups with this group, really being in the midst of that data, how would you try to appeal to them? And how is that appeal different from what you might think if you're assuming that the group, uh, that the coalition of people of color and uh, younger people and women that you're trying to mobilize are members of a progressive activist tribe?
0: The thing for them is more than anything, it's that they don't see themselves as Having a voice, or as having the ability, they don't see that they can change things. So the way in which they're going to be engaged with with politics is through overcoming that sense of lack of agency. And I think that probably happens more than anything through face to face encounters, through networks, through personal relationships. So you know, this is where politics has to go back to the basics of the door-to-door contact, the person-to-person contact. I mean, social media also, of course, plays a role with that. They're not engaging a whole lot with politics through traditional media, but much, much more through their own lives and their relationships.
1: It's interesting. I mean, uh, now that you put it in that context, the slogan, yes, we can, sounds as though it was focus group tested to appeal to this particular segment of a population. It is a way of saying, yes, you can affect change. What about more substantive issues, though? I mean, how would you frame the larger narrative or a political appeal if you wanted to speak to this group?
0: Well, I think that their concerns are healthcare is a major concern for them. They're concerned about I mean, the student debt issue is one that comes up when in, in conversation with them because they are a younger group and they're, being, they're more affected. So I think that that's an explanation. It's noticeable. For example, the same issue in Britain with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, they made huge inroads in the election last year with that student population and won seats which had never been won by Labour before in university student towns. It's the practical issues and it's Believing that there will be some impact as well from engaging in politics, from voting, being represented by a particular party. They doubt that their voice matters. They doubt that there will be change from their participation. They're not highly engaged by the sort of conflict-based Political rhetoric—they're not deeply ideological people. So I think you're right. I think when you look in retrospect, yes, we can. But then also, you know, more broadly, movement-based politics that has mobilised people—it has always had that characteristic of of a message of empowerment and agency among people who have felt left out. And I think that that is especially in the context of the United States, because there's a high level of disengagement. There are also more hurdles to mount in order to participate in the political process. Given voter suppression and the, the various forms of identification and the difficulty for enrollment in many states, it's been reported. Framing those sorts of issues through the lens of people standing up, coming together and exercising their agency, I think is really critical.
1: So it seems to me that the way to think about mobilizing people for the Democratic Party is quite different from what we tend to think. So we tend to think, it is a matter of appealing to this broad demographic coalition through consistently left-wing politics, which tend to be uh, to put a lot of emphasis on cultural issues, on identity issues, which uh, are sort of consistently woke in a certain kind of way, and which might even appeal to things like democratic socialism or abolishing capitalism, very radical economic system change. But what you actually need to do is to mobilize a set of people whose economic views are robustly liberal. But who are already quite skeptical of the ability of people to affect large-scale change, and who are much more interested in practical solutions than they are in sort of grand narrative. And so if you want to reach them promising decent healthcare, promising to deal with a problem of student loans, and having an empowering message that we can actually get those things done – is a much more realistic prospect than we are going to have democratic socialism or mostly talk about identity issues. Now, what's quite clear in this group, I think, is on cultural issues. They want to defend immigrants, they want to defend uh, illegal immigrants. They are horrified by Trump's kind of rhetoric, but they are not interested in the small points of this. They are more interested in sort of practical solutions.
0: I think there's one other point to note about the nature of authoritarianism is that part of the game, because you see this in other countries, part of what the authoritarian populists do is they make politics all about tribal conflict. They make it incredibly ugly and unattractive to people in the middle who don't like politics. And they the part of their strategy is to disengage. And that's why the I think the insights around the passive liberals are so interesting, because this is you know part of what the poison of authoritarianism does is that it makes people feel like politics is a dirty thing. We're a nonpartisan organization. You know, our perspective is we need to save democracy and maintain inclusive societies. And a key to that is people's participation in the democratic system. And politics needs to work. For people who are participating on the left and the right. Otherwise what happens is these fringes who kind of enjoy conflict. I mean, it's interesting, we ask the question for these wing groups, we ask, do you prefer conflict or an argument or, or sort of compromise and avoiding it? The people on the wing groups are twice as likely to say, yeah, I really like an argument. And I'm sure that it's a sort of question that people under-report their real feelings because it's a slightly odd thing to say, you know, I really like to have arguments. But I think that there is something here in this disposition of people in these middle groups where there's something that's, sort you of know, instinctively kind of unattractive and unappealing about political conflict. And we need to be mindful in the way that politics plays out, that it has a sort of, in a sense, I don't know, I don't want to sound naive, but a more wholesome quality to it. There's got to be something which is not just, you know, adding to people's sense of fatigue and exhaustion. And I think that's one of the problems, particularly in the way that the conflict is playing out in the context of the United States.
1: So how do passive liberals feel on compromise? How do they feel on talking to people as opposed to, you know, having an argument?
0: So they have a much stronger disposition towards compromise and really are are uncomfortable with argument, uncomfortable with conflict. So you get much higher numbers among both the traditional liberals and the passive liberals where you're getting, uh, I mean, I think from memory the numbers are around 70%
1: where they explicitly speak about the value of compromise. That's fascinating. I want to move on to two more groups. So one group is the moderates. And it seems to me that this debate about whether we should mobilize people, whether we should persuade the middle, may be a slightly fake debate, because my hope is that you can actually do both. So I want to talk about the 15% of moderates, who, as I understand them, are often quite traditional, quite religious, but horrified by Trump, really dislike his style of politics really think that America is going in the wrong direction and, by the way, relatively open to um, various forms of minority rights, quite disgusted by Trump's immigration policy, for example. What do you think it would take for a democratic candidate, for example, to mobilize that group of moderates?
0: I think that they are, as you say, they are definitely profoundly unhappy with division and they really rank highly concerned about poor leadership in the country. And yet on social issues, as I say, they do lean towards a more socially conservative point of view, so they're more concerned about questions of security, personal responsibility. They're cautious, more cautious about change. I mean, I think this group is with characteristic of this suburban soccer mom of the 1990s, sort of Clinton campaign era. Now, you know, at 15%, they're not a huge proportion of the electorate, but they are kind of your traditional notion of the swing voter. But they're not into the cultural and identity issues. So they are definitely more sort of put off by a sense of a kind of cultural elitism. There's an anxiety among them about being talked down to by the, you know, as you described them, the kind of the woke. And, in fact, that's something that we found across the exhausted majority group, that they feel that they are being made to look stupid and prejudiced by the put-downs. You know, it's a very common thing, but this time leading up to Thanksgiving in the United States, people would often, friends would often say to me, I'm I'm preparing for, you know, conflict with racist Uncle Donald at the Thanksgiving table. And, you know, I've prepared my talking points. How do you think this sounds? And, you know, the first thing to say is don't prepare talking points. You know, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, talk I mean, your you're, you're, you're talking down to him and you think that, like, facts are going to sort of shift his prejudice. Again, this is something that's interesting to me about the, you know, our work in the United States has shown Profound polarization, but I still think that two thirds of what we're seeing in the United States is is the same as we're seeing in Western European countries. The forces of fragmentation are strong. The forces that are driving these wedges between people are really similar.
1: Sure, I agree with that, but I want to sort of dig a little deeper into the strategic point, which is. If you have the passive liberals, which you're hoping to mobilize, and you have the moderates who are persuadable because they are actually very critical of Trump and so on, is it possible to hold those two groups together? Because in some sense, they're similar. They both want compromise. They're both quite horrified by Trump. They're both very open on cultural issues to defending illegal immigrants, for example, to having a of citizenship for them and so on. They also have a big disjunct on some of the economic things where for example, passive liberals are much more likely to think that your fate in life depends on luck and chance and so on, whereas moderates really tend to think it's about personal responsibility. Do you think it's possible to hold those two groups together or is there actually a cousin between them, which means that you have to choose?
0: Well, two things. One is to say that we shouldn't think of the moderates as centrists in a traditional sense. So we asked them a question about the whole, the political system in America. The moderate group is the group most likely to say that the American government is rigged to serve the rich and influential, A 91% agreement with that. So it's remarkable that they have such a rejection of the system. They are fed up as well. So they're anti-status quo in an interesting way, but they're culturally and socially more conservative. I think that the way in which that story comes together is that there is a way to tell a story about unity and the country coming together that speaks to both groups, and I think also speaks to the other groups, which defines the American identity as a more powerful force that unites people that's bigger than the differences of gender and race and sexuality. And I think that's the challenge with the kind of rainbow coalition style, this collection of minorities, the message that I think particularly came out in the 2016 campaign is that the whole is not more than the sum of its parts. When you tell that story, the moderates, I think, especially value the national identity. They are proud of being American, but not in a sort of belligerent way. They see it more as a matter of a privilege to be an American. It's on these questions of national identity that the progressive group is much more uncomfortable and awkward with speaking about being American. And yet, in your middle groups, it speaks them powerfully, including people of colour. I mean, it's not something that's only a matter of white identities. So I think that building an inclusive patriotism, in the language that you've used in your book, one that speaks to a stronger sense of belonging, a sense of togetherness, a sense that all of us, you know, it's when we come together that there is a better pathway to the future that all of us can benefit from. Not talking about so often about the the benefits or the need to address injustices towards particular, like individual groups, as if those groups are benefiting at the expense of the rest. I think that's the story of moving forward and sort of collective interest in the betterment of the country, the, the common good of all. And I mean, I know that sounds somewhat pollyanna but it's not the message that people have been hearing. And it's remarkable how in a moment, in a time of fracturing and fragmentation, if you're not including people in the message that you're you're giving, including people of, of all backgrounds, of all races, uh, gender, sexuality, migrant, American, etc., if you're not telling that big story of us, people aren't hearing it. And their willingness to, or their susceptibility to a narrative of us versus them, to the in-group, out-groups of dynamics that the authoritarians, they so easily do fall for that.
1: So I think what emerges from the study is that it is a way of combining those different rhetorical appeals that on the economy, I think what it is, is to be quite clear that there's lots of things that are wrong at the moment, that there's a crony capitalism, which is a problem, and which we're going to robustly address, that a lot of people do deserve, for example, healthcare, and that the current healthcare system is deeply broken. And then the cultural issue, as you're saying, it is to robustly defend minorities who are being discriminated against, who are being attacked. A large part of the US population is horrified by what the Trump administration is doing uh, on those fronts. But to frame it always as part of this universal story, to paint it as the reason why we're standing up for these groups is that they're American and this offends our American ideals. And in that sense, the report really has made me a lot more optimistic than I had been before. I think there is a vision of a decent America, which retains more majority support than you might think and it's possible to build a much broader coalition than you might think if you just stay within a bubble that creates litmus tests of what it means to be included in that group and that paints the rest of the country as instinctively uh, racist or inimical to those kind of ideals. So I really encourage everybody to go and read the report, The Hidden Tribes of America. Tim Dixon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks, yes. It's a privilege to join you and wish you all the
1: best. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friend all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Pay a social media influencer to secretly blazon The Good Fight all over their Instagram or Facebook feed. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show, to the goodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New
0: America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.